KMTT, Ki Mitzion Teitzei Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Emor, Yudalad Yar, which is Pesach Sheni, and the Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel, and is dedicated to his daughter, Shira Daniel, on her birthday. My mother-in-law. And no, there's no nepotism. The dedication for the Arab Shabbat program is paid for as a donation to KMTT. They say about the Abarbanel, who on that note I'll dedicate to my brother, who is a big fan of the Abarbanel, that uh, those who read the Abarbanel will become... Apikorsim, Kofrim, non-believers. Why do they say this about the Abarbanel? Because Abarbanel has a very lengthy commentary on the Torah, and on Nevi'im as well, but his style is very lengthy. And the way he builds it is that he writes up a hefty number of questions that he introduces the parsha with, or the parak, whatever it is he's learning. And only after saying these questions and formulating them in a very strong and convincing manner does he go about then going through the text. He doesn't even answer them directly. He goes through the text line by line, and then through going through the text, as he's going through the text, he answers the questions. Now, you know, you pick up the Abarbanel on Shabbat, you read it in between Aliyot, you pick it up for 20 minutes here. And not always are you privileged enough to reach the ending of the Abarbanel, and what you're left with are his questions. And for that reason, they say, if you read the Abarbanel, you are left with questions, you're a non-believer, as you said, because... You have all the questions, but you have no answers. Uh, I'd like to believe, though I'm not comparing myself in any way, shape, or form to the Barbanel, I'd like to believe that I believe strongly in the formulation of questions. The formulation of questions uh, will lead us to better understanding when we reach the answers. We don't always know the answers, however, and that shouldn't make us shy away from the questions, because A, the questions come forth from a real place, and we can't ignore that real place. B, we might get answers, and when we do get answers, we will be at a better place intellectually and in understanding our, the Torah when we have those answers. For that reason... I don't shy away from posing problems and posing questions that I don't have an answer for. I'd like to think that I have some sort of direction, even if at the end I'm not, I don't say, wow, that's a good answer, that solves the problem, move on to the next problem. And it's in that vein with this introduction that I go into Parashat more because Parashat more. Every year, 
I look at this problem, I poke at this problem. This week I had a discussion with a student, perhaps. We're a little bit closer to an answer, but the lack of an answer shouldn't be a reason for, for us to shy away from the question. And the question is, we'll, we'll raise another meta-issue before we formulate the question, and this is another meta-issue which we like to discuss as well, and that is, how do we, what do we do when the value system by which we live by doesn't seem to I would use the Yiddish word, I would say shtim, doesn't seem to fit, correspond to the value system that the Torah is using. And at times, we need to step back and say, well, we're listening to the Torah. And the Torah is what sets our values. And we have to set our set new values on the basis of the Torah and abandon the values that the culture around us pers- subscribes to. <clears throat> At other times we can find some sort of um, At other times we can find some sort of way of gapping the two and saying, well, the, the discrepancy is not as severe as we think. And in the cases where the values of society are good values, and how do we know what good is? Because we have a uh, <clears throat> instinctual moral compass by people who learn the Torah and, and see the larger picture. We don't have a problem determining this. And, and today's today's issue is really one of those issues where I accept the society's values around us because I think they're Torah values as well. But in this instance of the question, the Torah seems to take a position which is difficult to digest, and we need to think about this. In society today, we have come, we've traveled leaps and bounds, and probably there's still a way to go, to including handicapped people, whether it's people with severe handicaps that really cause uh, difficulty um, in their lives of getting around wheelchairs or worse, and whether it's blindness or deafness, or whether it's some sort of disfiguration. We educate our children, the people around us, don't judge a book by its cover, and there's a, there's a Jewish uh, parallel to that saying as well, it's not, a, it's not something that's foreign to Judaism. Jewish religion always is interested in taking care of the weak, and the weak in the Torah was always Ani Hayger Vayatom, Halmana, the poor person, the stranger who's not a natural part of society, whether that's a convert or just a foreigner, the widow who has no means of taking care of herself because in in the olden days 
the man was responsible for making a living and the woman was not. And a atonement, an orphan, with a similar problem. So the Torah, uh, pardon me, <coughs> the Torah will often, will, not often, does take care of the person with problems, the weaker person in society, and try to take care of them. We educate, as I said, we don't care about a person's disfigurement or scarring. We care about their content, their true content. And a person with fingers or without fingers, with a scar on his face, without a scar on his face, with some sort of disfigurement, that's not how we judge the person. We judge the person by their actions, by who they are, by their by their soul. We don't judge people in any case, but um, we don't turn them away because of their handicap. Adraba. We welcome them. We try to accommodate them. And here, in the Torah, we have the laws regulating a Kohen, that a Kohen who has some sort of mum, and we won't go into the details, and we'll leave the details for everybody to look into, and there's different details. There are permanent, there are permanent mumim, permanent blemishes, temporary blemishes. What are the blemishes? They are not a person with this blemish, and this would largely include many handicapped people. And people who we wouldn't even consider handicapped. would not be allowed to be koanim. Though they are koanim by birth, they are not allowed to be koanim, they are not allowed to, pardon me, they are koanim, they are not, not allowed to be koanim, they are not allowed to serve in the Beit HaMikdash. If the, already in, our, in the direction of our answer, we have to be careful in our formulations of the question, because they are koanim. How does it, how is this, fact true that they are Kohanim, despite the fact that they can't serve in the Beit HaMikdash, when it means they can't serve in the Beit HaMikdash, it means they are not allowed to offer sacrifices. But, the Torah does say, The bread of his God, he is not allowed to approach to sacrifice. But he is allowed to partake in the eating. The eating which is only for the Kohanim, whether it's kodshim kalim, lower level kodshim, holy offerings, <clears throat> that a certain portion is for the kohanim, and whether it's kodshe kodashim, that only kohanim are allowed to partake in eating those, a kohen baal mum, a kohen who has this blemish, who is not allowed to offer sacrifices, is allowed to partake. And this is already an important step to see, an important factor to look at, that a Baal Mum, Kohen, with a blemish, is a Kohen. He has rights of the Kohen. He's allowed to eat as a Kohen eats. Which, <clears throat> this is an important thing to say, say at our outset, <clears throat> what a Kohen eats 
is part of how he gets by. A Kohen is entitled to trumot from the the one one hundredth trumat gula trumat maser. The one one hundredth plus of a crop goes to the Kohen and it's eaten biktusha in, ho- in in holiness and purity b'tahara. And <clears throat> this a Balmu is allowed to partake in. He is not kept away from food that is otherwise not available to him. Because remember, the Kohen doesn't have his own land, and he's to a large extent dependent on this. And when this Kohen Balmum comes to the Beit HaMikdash for his two weeks a year, in which his family is working in the Beit HaMikdash, he doesn't work in the Beit HaMikdash, but he has every reason to be there because he can partake in the food that is eaten from the sacrifices during this week. And all that being said, he's not allowed to offer sacrifices. There are two directions that I want to take here, and as I say, I'm not sure that either direction gets me to the end point where I'm satisfied with the answer, but they're good directions of thought, and I think they take us a long way. The kihuna is not a democratic society. The kihuna is a choice of a certain small segment of the Jewish population. Only they are allowed to work in the Beit HaMikdash. It's not a democratic society. All of us who are not konim are discriminated against. In other words... Before we point to the fact that people with blemishes are discriminated against offering sacrifices, we should all point out that a worse discrimination, by today's standards, because it's a random discrimination, takes place. You, you're not from the Kohanim, you're a Zvulonite, you can't come into the Beit HaMikdash, you can't work in the Beit HaMikdash. Is that an answer to the question? It's not an answer. But we have to understand that what we're dealing with here is something very different than general Torah practices. General Torah practices include everybody. And here the Kohanim are on the outside. The Kohanim are different, or on the inside. Kohanim are different. Anybody who's not a Kohan is on the outside, immediately. So, the first layer of discrimination... It's not based on blemishes at all. It's based on parentage. Then, within the kuna, we have further discriminations. And as I said, discriminations to a point. Is sacrificing working in the Beit HaMikdash a right that we are taking away from people with blemishes? Or is it a responsibility that we're not giving to people with blemishes? We mentioned that eating, although even the eating of the korbanot is not a simple matter because that has to be done in purity in the right places, and there are restrictions there as well. But eating is something that we see as somewhat of a necessity. 
I'm saying somewhat of a necessity because the Kohen didn't sustain himself from the korbanot that he ate throughout the year. As I said, a Kohen in the time of second Beit HaMikdash was working two weeks a year, perhaps. <clears throat> there are Mishmarot, 24 families of Kuna. But if we assume that eating is a right, then the Kohanim had, those Kohanim with blemishes, as we showed in the Pesukim, have a right to eat the food. They don't have a, the responsibility to offer the sacrifices. Well, some people want responsibility. And this is something that in today's religious discussion, we see people want responsibilities, people want to be able to be chayav in mitzvot. And specifically, this is relevant to women's issues. Women don't want to be told that they're not obligated. They want to be obligated. And they obligate themselves in mitzvot that they're not obligated in. They want to participate in the shul. But that being said, I think we've said something that's relevant here. Second point, and here is, in my opinion, a more important point, is who is sacrificing? When the Korban HaTamid is brought, the daily sacrificing, the daily offering, and a Kohen, and it's more than one Kohen, but several Kohanim participate in whatever is involved in sacrificing, slaughtering the animal, cutting it up, bringing it onto the Mizbeach for burning. Who is bringing the sacrifice? Is it the Kohanim? The Kohanim are functionarily doing what is necessary to bring this korban onto the Mizbeach, and that is their job. But this is B'nai Yisrael's korban. <coughs> when a Jewish person, non-Kohen, accidentally does a Melchan Shabbat, he didn't know it was prohibited. He didn't know it was Shabbat. He forgot it was Shabbat. And he has to bring a korban chatat. And he brings the korban chatat to the Beit HaMikdash. The Kohen takes the korban from him. He slaughters it, although that might not be necessary for the, for the specific action of slaughtering. He slaughters it. It's dismembered, it's brought onto the Mizbeach, what is eaten by the Kohanim is eaten by the Kohanim, what is put onto the Mizbeach to be burnt is put onto the Mizbeach to be burnt. <coughs> Pardon me. But whose Korban is this? This is that person's Korban, my Korban. I did the sin, it is my Chatat. I am forging a relationship with God in this Korban. The Kohanim, they're my messengers or God's messengers, but it's my Korban. Here, anyone could bring a korban. A man could bring a korban. A woman could bring a korban. A person with a blemish could bring a korban. A non-Jew could bring a korban. The Beit HaMikdash is open for anybody to come close to God through the korban. And we could argue, and I don't have an answer for this right now, who comes closer to God through this korban? Is it the Kohen who's slaughtering and dismembering and bringing onto the Mizbeach hundreds of korbanot a day, on a good day, or on a bad day, I don't know. I don't know what the statistics were. 
and this is an assembly line for him, but for me, this is my chatat, this is my atoning for my sin. This is significant to me. doesn't matter who I am. I could bring a korban, as I said. Male, female, with blemishes, handicapped, non-Jews. Anybody could come close to God through the bringing of a korban. So what then is the kohen? The kohen is a vessel. The kohen is a vessel to bring my korban to God. Not everybody can walk into the Beit HaMikdash. There, is, there are legions that belong into the Beit HaMikdash that work for God. And the kohanim have this dual role of being God's messengers and being our messengers. But they are vessels. And just like the kelim in the Beit HaMikdash, do we value only gold? Do we think money is everything? No, we don't. We think money is irrelevant, something relevant. We need it to support our families. We need to give money to poor people. But in the Beit HaMikdash, we use the finest gold and the finest silver. And when we're bringing korbanot, our animal is the finest animal without any blemishes. as we also read in the Parsha. And the flower that we bring in a meal offering is the finest flower, because this is the Beit HaMikdash. So the Kohanim too have to be perfect looking. In the Beit HaMikdash, everything is perfect in exterior looks, because we live in a physical world. And for God, everything has to be perfect. In the king's castle, everything is perfect. And in God's Beit HaMikdash as well, the finest vessels, the finest animals, and the finest Kohanim in their appearance. Does it satisfy you? It may, it may not. Does it satisfy me? To a certain extent. It's a different ballpark right now. We're on a different playing field. I think we have a different concept of what we're talking about. The Kohen is not on a higher level. He has a, he has a job. I think there needs to be two more statements said regarding what I said about the Kohen not being on a higher level. One is the institution of Nazirut. The Nazir someone who decides to take upon himself certain prohibitions. When we read Parshat Naso, we will see that some of the formulations there remind us of the Kohen, the Kohen Gadol. It says, you a regular person, you can through your actions choose to Make yourself on the level of the Kohen Gadol to a certain extent. Can't work in the Beit HaMikdash. But there are ways of striving to be like a Kohen if you really want to be a Kohen, even if you're not a Kohen. And that attests to the democratic nature of the Torah. And finally, and I know I've taken a little bit too long this week, <coughs> the Chachamim teach us 
תלמיד חכם ממזר, קודם לכהן גדול עם הארץ. תלמיד חכם הוא איזה ממזר, הבסטרד. Come out of parentage. That was an adulterous parentage. He's not allowed to get married to regular Jews. But if he's a Talmud Chacham, he's preferential. We give him more respect. We allow him to bench. Before we allow a Kohen Gadol Ama Aretz. A Kohen Gadol, but he's an Ama Aretz. He doesn't know any Torah. We prefer that Mamzer, Talmud Chacham. Someone pointed out to me, well, let's finish the point before someone pointed out to me, in the field of learning Torah, which is arguably, but a good argument could be made, the most important field within Judaism, within Torah values, here, the playing field is completely open. Keter Torah, Pirkei Avot teaches us, that's there for everybody to take. Keter Malchut, you got to be from Beit David. Keter Kuna, you have to be a Kohen. But Keter Torah, it is... Place there on the table, it's a buffet, whoever wants to come and take it, go ahead and take it. You push yourself, you go and take that Keter Torah. And that's the highest value. And here, we're completely democratic. Men, women, children, handicapped. You want to come close to God through learning Torah, it's there for you. Take it. Someone pointed out to me, that in biblical Judaism, we don't see the learning of Torah as the be-all and end-all. We see Nevi'im, we see Kohanim, those positions are, and kings, those positions are far more important positions. Yeah, okay, Chachamim came along and said Torah and this and that. But let's remember just something about what biblical Judaism, the view of the Bible, tells us about Kohanim, Nevi'im, and Melachim. All those positions are corruptible positions. When we talk about the Kohanim, read, the, read in the Nevi'im, you will see about the Kohanim Abamot, you will see the Kohanim who are doing everything wrong. They're taking their position that they were given as a privilege and corrupting it. We see more Melachim than more bad Melachim than good Melachim in our history when we read through Sefer Melachim. And for every Eliyahu Navi and Elisha Navi, there were thousands of Nevi'ei Sheker. These institutions of Nevu'ah, that only those who were privileged to a Nevu'ah were privileged to, Kuna, only those who were part of the Kohanim, and, and Melucha, only those who were kings were kings. These privileged institutions were often corrupt institutions. And perhaps it was not by accident that post-biblical Judaism stressed chokhmah, being learned in Torah as the highest value, because that, that's an equal playing field. That's the, equal, the equalizing factor. We can't throw out the concept of kuna from our vocabulary. That's not my intention. Nor nevuah, nor melucha. But I think what we've said here, things that have been said here today, are important things to be mentioned. 
about the values of the Torah. I think we've said some significant steps. We've taken some significant steps in the right direction. And from the time on the clock here, on the MP3 player, I have to ask KMTT to pay me for a regular shear. It went a little bit too long today. My apologies. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, blessings on Pesach Sheni if there are such blessings. Blessings on Lagba Omer if there are such blessings. Uh, Shabbat Shalom.